0: Each other in the face, it's a race to the top, the top
1: of the space. First place, a bunch Sometimes men in the face. Talking about wrestling, talking about wrestling. Who are these people breaking open each other's heads?
2: Sometimes they wear pink and blue or gold, sometimes they wear red. Sometimes they retire, sometimes they did.
1: That's
2: cold, man.
1: Yeah, I know, but what you gonna do?
2: Nothing, I guess. For real, cause that's life. Life in the ring No doubt And anyway, when they die, they come back to life And then
0: it's better than when they were dead Because they're breaking new heads and new legs And gender politics and race politics And boundaries and anyway, none of it's real You sure? Well, not in a
1: physical violence sense Hit
2: it, hit it Okay
0: Welcome to The World According to Wrestling, I'm Dan Higgins. In the first series, we spoke to a lot of people about stereotypes in wrestling, particularly when it came to race and national identity. To recap, just like soap operas, wrestling often utilizes stereotypical characters, and sometimes that can be problematic, especially when a character's nationality is used to elicit hatred towards a bad guy, for example. And firstly, there's the obvious stuff. Regularly, there have been characters who use their nationality to encourage USA chants for the good guys, From what is usually an american crowd rusev a bulgarian pretended he was russian complete with putin on the screen to get a negative crowd response even now one of the champions jinder mahal an indian canadian wears a turban stands on a carpet in the ring and speaks punjabi to get booed and perhaps it's worse there was a character called muhammad hassan who is essentially a radicalized terrorist who ended up being taken off air after a particularly ill-timed storyline aired as the London bombings unfolded. And there's always been a problematic history in wrestling when it comes to stereotyping non-white wrestlers. It used to be the case that the only real storyline background for black wrestlers was either that they were from jail or from the wild. Yes it was that bad. Even recently think Booker T, MVP, Crime Time. There's also been a lot of blurring of nationalities. Yokozuna, a Samoan, played a Japanese sumo wrestler. Kofi Kingston played a Jamaican. He's a Ghanaian-American. And there is also a very fine line between embracing a tribal heritage, as we have seen with many Samoan wrestlers, and just portraying a racist stereotype. Mexicans have also had their fair share of national identity stereotyping well before Donald Trump started doing it. Eddie Guerrero's whole character was based on lying, cheating and stealing. And at its worst, a group of wrestlers called the Mexicals came to the ring on lawnmowers called Juan Dias, that again actually happened. This side of the Atlantic, this happens as well. British wrestlers in WWE historically have been presented as tea-loving monarchists. Even today there's a British wrestler, Jack Gallagher, whose character is a British gentleman who dives around the ring with an umbrella, attempting to be reminiscent of scenes from Mary Poppins. Seamus, an Irish wrestler, up until recently had photos of Celtic landmarks as his entrance video. There's also been shillelaghs and leprechauns involved at different times. Again, this actually happened. Now, sometimes wrestlers try to avoid these nationality-defining characterisations. Here's British wrestler Neville, who doesn't represent that archaic national identity stereotype, speaking to our producer Rob. A lot of classic British wrestlers, very, like in a lot of WWE, if you, look at, if you look at the rest of the world, it's almost characterised a British character drinks a cup of tea. Yes. You've never been that stereotypical British guy, I, I don't feel anyway. No, here. no, absolutely Have you not. consciously tried to avoid being that stereotype?
3: I have. So I didn't want to pigeonhole myself by being one
0: stereotype. Um, I've always tried my best to be a hybrid performer. I'm a fan of all styles. I grew up you know, watching Lucha Libre, Japanese style, uh, American style. And when I was training and working in the dojo in Japan, and so I
3: made a point of trying to learn, or to my best ability, learn every single style I could.
2: So you know, whilst I am British and whilst I am proud of my identity, I'm not going to parade around as a stereotype. You know, I'm, I feel like I've, I've made an effort to be almost an all-encompassing, uh,
0: you know, multi-stylistic wrestler. So um,
3: a bit of conscious effort not, not to be a star.
0: Neville now sort of plays Game of Thrones King-like character, which is a significant upgrade in the UK national identity stakes. And generally now, things are much improved. Aside from a few modern exceptions, most black wrestlers today are wrestlers who just happen to be black. They're hardly ever playing the wild man anymore. So has wrestling moved past the racist stereotyping? Here's Dave Meltzer, the editor of the Wrestling Observer.
3: I never really hear people even talk about race in modern wrestling. I mean, certainly in the past, it was very much part of it. I mean, it's just kind of people are people and I think that's really healthy. It's like if people go like, oh, do you think this guy's held back, you know, because of his race? You know, I always think, you know, I don't even think about that now. I mean, people are held back for different reasons, but I don't think that there's any qualms about pushing anyone past the idea of, of um, you know, I mean, there's always marketing feelings, you know, I mean, as far as, as anyone, if they feel that you're marketable, but I don't think race fits into it. And, and as far as like minority status, I think it's, 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 it's a positive to an extent because I think the WWE is definitely looking for stars and people of, of multi-ethnic things because they're trying to be a worldwide company. So it, I think ethnicity is actually to your benefit as opposed to be to your hindrance where, you know, in the past it could have been to your hindrance and it's certainly in the wrong place with the wrong promoter. It could have been. Yeah.
0: Looking at that kind of wild man stereotype of the past or the, or the gangster stereotype or, or even in British stereotypes. So like, obviously we had Regal who was very much a tea drinking British guy, and Jack Gallagher now is, is harking back to that kind of gentleman thing, which doesn't probably represent the broader British audience. But why do you think wrestling relies on such overt stereotypes? Wrestling's
3: always had that... St- yeah, it is kind of funny when it comes to that, that, that they'll do that. And, you know, they did the same thing with with Latino characters as well. And some of it is the guys looking at their own culture and stereotyping their own culture and, and trying to, um, you know, come up with ideas that are that are authentic, that are exaggerated authentic, so... But yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's funny that you know you bring that up in the sense of the the, the Gallagher character almost feels like you know an American stereotype of, of British people that isn't really British at all, or or is, or is from a you know, or if it is, it's from a like a, a long gone era.
0: But it's interesting also, like, when Seamus, up until recently, his entrance video was just Irish, kind of Celtic crosses in different places of Ireland and then some shots of Ireland <laughs> as his entrance video. And it's just like, how much more Irish can this guy get? Why do you think that they they have those overt stereotypes? Is it to kind of, to reach different
3: audiences or is it to... I think with Seamus, one of the things they were hoping for is to um, push him as a top guy and, and have a... You know, you're always looking for a hero... In a marketplace, because that's what really, you know, in in, co- in combat sports, whether it's boxing and in the future it'll be MMA, you know, the, the, you really can boost popularity of the sport when you've got that local hero that really connects. And I think that they were looking at Seamus to do that in Ireland and 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 maybe even in the in, in all of the UK. But he wasn't that guy. I mean, I know they wanted him to be that guy, but he just wasn't that guy.
0: And is there any other points where you think that characters or even wrestling has gone too far?
3: Oh, all the time. All the time. I mean, um, it, it, it's, it's hard to pinpoint, but, you know, sometimes you'll watch and you just feel it and you know it. And it's just like, yeah, that, um, it's not, you know, they're, they're pushing too hard or it's a tasteless direction or things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, they're always trying to push boundaries and stuff. It, they've softened of, of late, but they, there's still things. You know, now, now it's more too far in the silly direction sometimes more than anything else as far as, you know, as compared to the racial direction. But before it was, you know, they did that all the time. Yeah.
2: Attention. Attention. Attention.
3: Attention. Amazing. 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 Incredible.
0: At the turn of the millennium one of the big stars in WWE was Rikishi. He is an American Samoan and from the same family as Yokozuna, The Rock, The Wild Samoans, Roman Reigns and The Snookers. Umaga was his brother, the Usos are his sons. It's an impressive legacy. But Rikishi was huge in his own right. Most people remember him for his dancing, his large behind, his thong loincloth and his signature move the stink face which involved Rikishi rubbing his basically bare bottom in the face of his downed opponent. But his career was much longer than that, playing a series of characters since the 80s, many of which were tinged with this racial stereotyping. The Sultan, a character he played who had had his tongue removed, was actually The Rock's first WrestleMania opponent. He was also in tag teams called the Samoan Swat Team, managed by Paul Heyman, and the Head Shrinkers, which were a bit like the Wild Samoans. He even played a sort of New Day-like Power of Positivity character, But it was the fun-loving, dancing, loincloth-wearing Rikishi where he found his biggest success, being propelled into a storyline in which he ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin in order to help The Rock rise up against the great white hope. So what did he think of his career? Here's Rikishi.
1: Well, it's great. I mean, uh, I'm I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, wrestling is uh, entertainment. And, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to say that you know, with all the characters that were thrown at me, and we discussed and so forth. You know, you know, at, at the time it's like you know, everything comes back home to me. And when I mean come back home, it comes right back to the Wild Samoan Training Center with my uncles off and Sika. You know, they they've taught us to to be able to adapt that anything, any character that comes up with as far as creative service, that you just learn how to adapt towards it and bring that character. And do the best you can and and it goes right back into your in-ring skills i mean i had a lot of fun with the different characters but it also kept me you know on my toes and on my on my feet to be able to perfect my craft and you know in professional wrestling dan if you don't love this business and you don't understand this business the inside and out the locker room etiquette how the business goes and, and I mean, it can really beat you up, but where you win at is you win in a square circle and that's where your talent comes. So I had a blast doing all those characters.
0: And did you come up with the characters or were they were they presented to you? How did that process work?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, the talent. I mean, if I don't feel comfortable doing it, then why throw it on me? I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to be the best character a person for that character. I mean, keep in mind, there's a lot of other wrestlers that are up underneath me. There's some in the holding tank that are waiting to come up to the big dance. And, you know, so, uh yeah, I mean, there was always a, a give and take uh, coming up with certain characters. You know, some characters I flopped on ideas, some characters, their characters flopped on ideas. But I do want to say that, you know, that the Sultan character was one of my favorite characters. It was just unique, and at the time, I was a big Iron Sheik fan. I mean, Iron Sheik is a legend in this industry, and to be able to be with this guy in your corner and have him give you knowledge and so forth of how to make that character come alive, I, I was aiming for that Iron Sheik heat. I wanted that type of heat in that character, but unfortunately, you know, if anything else, when something goes good, it's nipped in the butt and we were just out the picture after that.
0: But you did have that WrestleMania moment with The Rock as the
1: Sultan. Yes. I mean, I, that was fun, you know. Um, I, I actually have to remind myself, or the fans do, that that was actually The Rock's first WrestleMania without the Red. And I mean, it was fun. I mean, anytime you get to wrestle against family members, I mean, Dan, I mean, to the to people watching on TV, we're competing at the same time, but at the same time, we're sitting there. I mean, you have family members going back and forth. I mean, it's just a blessing, and it's it's just a fun thing to
4: do, you know?
0: So you signed for WWE as the Head Shrinkers, and then you went solo as a Make a Difference character, which actually was all about the power of positivity, and in a way, very similar to the New Day, do you think?
1: Of course. I mean, during that time, when you talked about when I shift over from Make a Difference, It was actually an idea that I came up in
2: and it was
1: my life growing up in San Francisco, California. Uh, The opportunities that was given to an island boy that lived in the swamps of Sunnydale, California, right across the street from the world famous Cow Palace where I watched Peter Maivia and, and, and my uncles often seek to perform. And so at the time, the, the, the head shrinkage was kind of dying out and I needed to move on to do something, something different. And yeah, I just kind of came up with that type of concept. You know, I wanted to kind of tell my story and be that character to try to be the guy that came out of the swamps of San Francisco, the streets of San Francisco who danced his way to make a few dollars in front of a dollars to go in and, and just to see the show and so forth. And I wanted to bring that type of character to the TV screen. And unfortunately, during that time, I guess it was the rainbow colours or because it definitely wasn't the dancing. Uh, but I think it was something that just didn't fit at that time. And, you know, again, Dan, it was one of those things that weight was put on it and it was, you know, time to the chop for it again.
0: But it's funny how those, that same idea the New Day are using now and running with it and it's, and it's resonating.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just different. That things that we used to do back in the day, now I think they realize that wrestling, to me, is a lot of characters and entertainment. Um, and when you walk into a wrestling arena, like myself as a kid, you want to know which wrestler is who. And the only way I knew that is everybody had their own identity. Nowadays, and I'm not knocking none of the wrestlers that are out there, but I would suggest that they don't all go to the same seamstress. You you might want to, you know, switch up your outfit and kind of look different from everybody else and so forth to have your own identity. So I think that, you know, it's good to see that the company, WWE, is coming back to building character. I'm I'm a big fan of Way Wright, White, and the family. Uh, I'm a fan of uh, Raymond Roman Reigns of course I'm a fan of my kids that are out there and you know I I, I love seeing Dolph Ziggler do his stuff he kind of reminds me of Mr. Perfect and then I'm even proud to say one of our very own from Knoxville Academy the Bulgarian monster Rusev it is no doubt that wrestling needs to go back to building creating characters but here's the trick part Dan you can build all the characters you want but if you don't find the right person to bring that character alive and make people, the wrestling world, believe that this guy was really this character, that character never worked. Take it from a guy that went with six different characters.
0: Yeah, and that's really interesting. And cause then you did the Sultan, and then finally Rikishi came about. And you became wildly popular. And over in the UK here, you were just as popular as you were in America. Like I can say to my family members, like I'm talking to Rikishi later and they'll know exactly who I'm talking about and they're not even wrestling fans. So why do you think it was that this character was the one that, that stuck and resonated the most with the audience?
1: I think because it was different. Uh, what you've seen out there was the real, that, that's who I really am. Um, I'm a happy-go-lucky type of guy. I love to dance. I, I love to eat good food. I'm like your your natural cat that you see, um, your, one of your family members. I'm your uncle Uncle Kishi or or brother Kishi. That you know, that just a normal type of dude, and I love to have fun. And I, I think I I brought that force into the ring, but you know, and and it shows that you know on my wild Samoan side, you know I'm a happy, lucky guy. But you piss me off, I'm the type of type of guy that's going to hold his own and represent where he comes from. I felt like, you know, that I was really connected with the fans and the fans were connected with my, with myself and enjoying what I was doing in that. I mean, keep in mind the WWE universe and all the fans around the world, they're, they're not stupid. Uh, today's fans, they all see if they don't like you, they're definitely going to tell you. If they feel you're over, they're going to tell you. I mean, if they feel like you're just boring, then they're going to, you know, they're going to voice their opinion. And the industry is so worldwide now, Dan, that the voice of, of wrestling fans is so powerful today. And that's why, you know, uh, here at uh, Los Angeles, we have a Knoxville Academy. And I want to say this, and I'm always bragging and I tweet about it because I am. I'm very proud of all my our students that are here at Knoxville. And I guarantee you this, Dan, by by the time you see these kids come out of Knox Pro, these are the stars of tomorrow. These kids they get it, they're well respected, they understand ring psychology, they it feels like uh understanding what it means to be in front of the limelight, like you know, just carry themselves as professionals and it domino effects uh into their personal lives. Like, you know, what they learn in in professional wrestling, it's so much and it just gives you as a pro wrestler, you have so much responsibility.
0: Perhaps your most famous storyline was the big reveal that you ran over Stone Cold, and it was a a year-long storyline which presented you, I think JR called you at the time, the most infamous perpetrator in WWE history. Like, this was a big push. How did that storyline come about, and how long in advance did did you know about it?
1: Well, I mean, it was definitely, again, storylines Good storylines are are kept long secrets. And, you know, again, let me spit this out again. What we do is entertainment out there. So you have these players and you try to figure out what's the best way for these players to be utilized. And to be able to bring a new player in there, such as myself, which is the new Rikishi character, that just skyrocketed out of nowhere. Trust me when I say this, I don't think the office or anybody had any idea that how fast this character was going to take off and be a household name, what it is today. And when we kind of sketched this out, you know, planned it for a whole year and so forth, I really didn't understand. It was, I was a it, Dan, about mm-hmm. going, you know, switching over heel. I mean, to me, I was on the highest ride, you know, I'm looking for the next, you know, the title run and so forth and, to be able to finally be a WWE champion and then you know the uh all the storylines kind of you know again with WWE they always want to s- throw a swerve in there someplace when something's going good they want to throw some swerve in there to kind of switch up the storyline and it came to me and we we're talking about it I, I I thought about it for a long time didn't really give a quick answer you know as far as uh switching over heel I was just you know for once in a long time besides winning the tag team championship belts with my cousin samu for once in a long time i really felt i mean accepted by the wwe universe and what i mean about that is all the different characters that i went through they knew it was me but here i come again here i come again here i come again and then finally here's this big gigantic Rikishi character that's that's born and and so I really was hesitating on turning heel. And then of course, you know, we you know, we talked about it and and finally, you know, it took me about a week or so to kind of really, you know, sink in my thoughts of, you know, how this is what's gonna go down. And at the time, you know, there's it was stacked to being baby faces on our side and we were kind of uh less on the heel side. So I, you know, I I, I felt that who better than to work with the rock and, and stone cold. that will be my chance right there for me to switch over and, and, and work heel and be in the main event spot and so forth. And, you know, that's what happened. And, you know, we kind of, you know, made that switch. It, it was, I'm surprised I didn't get shot or get beat up from the arena in Los Angeles when I made the turn, the heel turn and actually admitted that you know it was me that did that. So, but again, you know, it was good for business at the time. You know, it was one of those storylines that I was very proud to, you know, to be a part of. Uh, but the only thing that I wish would have went on was to give Big Kisha a uh, title run and to be able to be a WWE champion.
0: Yeah, I know. It's surprising that didn't happen. But in this storyline, of course it was a storyline, but your reasons for turning Hill were sort of valid. Like, because there's been loads of white champions. There had been that great white hope. And only really Yokozuna and The Rock were the kind of the counter side of that. So was there something that needed to be addressed with that storyline? And how did you feel about doing it at the time?
1: Well, I mean, I really didn't think about all that. You know what I mean? I didn't think about being the Great White Hope or nothing like that. You know, during the time of the Attitude Era, there was so much going on then. You know, and you know, you got all these big players that are there and so forth. But, you know, uh, maybe probably if I would have thought about it at the time and looked at it from what you're looking at, yeah, I probably would have made a stand about it. You know, who knows? I probably would have packed my bags or walked out the door. Maybe I should have stand firm, you know, a, a lot harder and think about it a lot harder. Uh, but, you know, during that time, it was just, you know, the op- opportunity rose up in front of me, kind of again, kind of sat and thought about it and so forth. And, you know, without a doubt, you know, that's probably the only that I can say that, you know, I was happy to be a part of such a big, I mean, iconic, legendary angle that'll go down in history. But there was one thing puzzled that was missing there. And that's me being the WWE champion during that time.
0: Yeah, that's true. And having watched it back fairly recently, it really was a compelling storyline. And especially the stuff around you um, saying you were doing it for The Rock because you wanted to see like a non-white champion and all that kind of stuff. I was interested in how you feel Samoan wrestlers have been um, presented over time, particularly from the aspect of the wild bad guy, so to speak.
1: Well, I, you know, I want to say this. The Samoan legacy, being there in WWE, it has been their talent. It was nothing ever given to us, Dan, and I want the world to understand that. Is that, you know, every angle or whatever they threw, a storyline or whatever it may be, You can look back in the histories. There was always an island guy that was in the storyline back in the day uh, to get what we talk about, the Great White Hope, or whoever, whoever the guy that they're pushing at the time. But I don't feel anything was ever handed to me or my family or the Samoan dynasty. I mean, every single person that's in this family that's been five decades in the WWE has worked their tail off. We work our butt off to uh, to do what we do, and not only that, you know, we're humble, educated, talented people that come into the professional wrestling industry. Who what we love and respect so much, but we're also the type of people that you don't want to you don't want to push us to that savagery, what they like to call a savage edge, because this is when they see the real people, Samoans that are come out. And pretty, and then it's not pretty. And so I'm very proud to say that nobody gave us nothing when we came to any professional wrestling organization. The Samoans worked their tail off. We are that damn good. And we understand the industry is the reason why we were booked and being put in certain matches.
0: I guess the, the interesting thing for me is that whereas it used to be pushed as like a Samoan wild man, now, like with your sons, the Usos, they are m- very much paying tribute to the culture, but they're not a stereotypical wild man. Do you think that has changed for the better?
4: Well, that's
1: them being themselves. I mean, they're out there representing, the, you know, representing the culture. I-, I told my kids, don't be a gimmick. Go out there, and the only gimmick you're gonna have is what you're wearing. But you go out there, be yourself. Be yourself. Utilize your training what was taught from home. Utilize your training on the road, inside locker room, outside in the public. You know, so, yeah, it's uh, to me, they're doing a good job. It's better for them to, to, to be themselves. If, if you go out there and be yourself, then you're going to perform better. You're going to go out there and give those people that paid their hard-earned money, a father of five, the ticket prices are 50 bucks, let alone you can't buy popcorn and hot dogs for your kids. Go out there and give that one man and his family their money's worth. So the answer to answer that question, yes, I'm very proud of what they're doing and representing. I think it's a good thing what they're doing.
0: I guess it was just like, do you think that the idea of the of the savage character is not relevant anymore and they have surpassed that? Do you see what I mean? Because there used to be a lot in Samoan and non-white history. Yeah, we're
1: way past that. You know, wh- whoever wrote that, when they wrote that, it was very hard to play that savage characters coming up behind my uncle's outfit in Zika. You know, when the head trickers came up, I mean they were doing stuff like bite chicken, raw chicken and raw fish. Hell, I don't bite raw fish and raw chicken. You know? And so, yes, you know, I think that these times, all of that is surpassed.
2: I mean, the island
1: island boys, there are a lot of I mean, back then and today. They're educated, handsome, big boned, beautiful, you know, well known island uh Polynesians that are all across the world. And yes, I mean, look at The Rock. Look what he's doing. You know, look at Roman Reigns. Look what he's doing. You see what Knox Pro Academy here in Los Angeles is doing. I mean, so yes, this, it, we're yeah. not what they portray us to be back in the day. Those stories exactly.
0: Like so would you say that back in the day, it was that the case was to use that kind of character to elevate the the great white hope, so to speak?
1: Yes. Yes. You had to have, I guess in their eyes, they wanted animals to, you know, where you have a great white hope to slay an animal. It is what it is back in the day. And now, you know, the industry has changed. Hopefully there's a lot more, you know, smarter, creative, troll-writing people that are underneath that umbrella to be able to write some, some good, entertaining stuff.
0: And you were hugely famous for doing The Stink Face. I'm really interested. How did that move come about? And how did other wrestlers feel about taking the move?
1: Well, I want to, you know, it was actually born out in uh, a regular house show in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, Do you remember a gentleman by the name of Ray Trailer, Mr. Balsman, a great wrestler? He was actually the one that helped me with that. We actually was working on a non-televised show, Mobile, Alabama, and I was wrestling the Balsman during uh, that night. And I gave him a clothesline in the corner, and this is where you see the person you know, in the corner and he, he took a fall, he took a bump. And when he took a bump, I was actually not looking at him. And I can hear some lady, it's just like a whole lady picture. This like Rikishi, just turn around and stick your butt in his face. And this is where you see that slow turnaround. So I'm actually looking and I'm in the middle of the ring, but I see bossman in the corner. And you see everything, how I done the speech face is how I kept it, how I done it that first night. I turned around, I looked at him, I'm staring at him for a minute. I took my first step, I hear the crowd roar. Then my second step, the crowd got louder. The closer I got to him, I want to say this, Dan, it was probably the loudest pop I've ever heard. When I turned around, and his face was just, you know, the same level as as Rikishi's butt. And I just paused there for a second because I wanted to hear and see how long I can make the fans sing. And I, I, you know, they sang and they sang and they sang, and then all of a sudden, bam! I sat on him, and the roof just blew up. Now this was on a Sunday. <laughs> on a Sunday. On you know, a Sunday, it happened, and the stink face was introduced the next night on Monday Night Raw.
0: Did everyone just sing that backstage and just go this has to be your move now?
1: Well, it, it was when I turned around. Of course, I'm sure everybody was saying, no, he's not. No, he's not. I'm sure people in the locker room, the wrestlers, the girls, you know, the, the agents, they didn't know it was coming. I mean, and then I can hear Ray Traylor, the great boss man, and I love him so much. Man, if you hear me, he much love it. He says, come on, boy. He says, stick your ass in my face. Stick your ass in my face. <laughs> and when I, the man, when I sat back, I said, really? Said, yeah. I said, well, here it comes. And when it came, he it was just, I mean, it was like a volcano erupted. I mean, it was so loud in there that it was hard to follow that. It was hard to do anything after the state Facebook but call home. And that's exactly what happened, and, you know, there it was. Ever since then, the following day, I did the state phase. Mason McMahon heard the roar in the arena. Then he started lining them up. You know, when I first had that walked in the dressing room with a thong, Dan, I said, <laughs> you're getting all exclusive now. You're getting exclusive abuse. When I first had the thong and I walked through it, nobody seen me with this character because it was just talked about it. And when I first came out with it, going through the locker room to work my way up to the gorilla position, you know, you walk by people, and I, I forget who it was. There were so many divas, canned wrestlers, but you can hear, like, smirch, like, they're looking. I don't have the most prettiest ass in the world, but it's soft. <laughs> and you kind of remember, I said, okay, I don't know who it was, but I know there was a lot of people here. There's going to be a lot of stink faces going down my career. I, I, you know, I want to say a shout-out to, I mean, Trish, Trish Stratus. She, it was weird, because all the divas wanted me to stink face them, But the guys didn't want to. Trish Status stepped up. Lita stepped up. Tori stepped up. I mean, Ivory, Nydia, Don Marie. I mean, the list goes on. They were all like in mind. Like they'd walk by me in the locker room. Am I taking a stage face today? It just kind of felt weird, you know?
0: Yeah, and and it's amazing because it was hugely popular. You've mentioned them already. You've got two sons who are very successful in WWE today. How have you perceived the business to have changed since you were there?
1: It's grown a lot. I mean, gigantic. I mean, as far as with uh, so much talent that are coming through. I mean, they have every single athlete that they come, that they have up there are, are, I have nothing but respect for these kids. They work their asses up, tail off. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, I see the, the schedules that they go through are probably 10 times a lot more than, how we were back in the day. I mean, they're hardly never home. You know, they if they're not doing media or personal appearance here and there, it's just double the schedule uh, back in the day of what we used to do—two hundred days out the year. I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I'm I'm happy that I see how it's changing, and it's to me it's changing that as far as them going back to using characters in professional wrestling. And I think that you know, uh, change that can be needed or needed is to be able to give these wrestlers, or all of them, you know, some type of rest period, Dan. You know how we have, like, NBA and football and, well, you know, to me, I would like to see a change in there to where the guys' bodies and also the females that are out there, you know, you mentally program yourself to be a machine. Sooner or later, that body's going to shut down. What What is it like to jump off a huge cell? It was crazy, Dave. What do you think? Like coming up a 15 foot high cage. But again, this is what you train for, you know. When you you're climbing, I don't even think people thought a 425 pounder guy could climb that that damn cage when I climbed up there. And when I finally got up there, I want to tell everybody I was tired as hell. So I had to wait for a few seconds then. Again, it goes right back to my training. You know, it's like with, with Uncle, I can hear my uncles talk in my ear. When you, whenever an opportunity comes, seek it and own it. And during that time, it was one of those opportunities. I said that if I ever got a chance to come fly off and jump off of a cage, I don't know who, but I was going to do it. Because I, when I seen Jimmy Snooker do it, it was like the biggest highlight I mean, it's still stuck in my head. I can see it as if he did it last night. And I'm pretty sure it's stuck in everybody's throat And I wanted to do that. And when that opportunity came, you know, it was one of those times that, you know, man, it, I mean, people were going crazy. I mean, it was so loud. My only worries was not to slip and fall off of the damn cage backwards. <laughs> I want to I send a shout out to, you know, a great wrestler Val Venus, who was out there, Miss, Mr. Cannabis. He's out there, he's listening, send a shout out. Thank you for, you know, the wonderful angle. Thank you for running up and down the road and, and, you know, us mixing it up together.
0: WWE Hall of Famer Rikishi. He runs a training school called Knox Pro Academy in California. At this juncture, I thought it'd be interesting to get the perspective from someone who wrote the characters. Is the British gentleman, the evil foreigner and the Samoan Wildman truly a thing of the past? Here's former WWE writer, Court Bauer.
2: Well, that was starting to become very passe when I was there. There were certain times when even Vince would like to go in that direction. And I think he always will have a tendency to go there, especially when it's involving humor. But in, so much of wrestling, has, has, up until recent years, has been built on that. If you look at Mr. Fuji as one of those characters, I mean, you know, they would say he's from the Orient, which a lot of people find even now to be pretty offensive and throwing the salt and everything. It just... You can see a lot of it uh, if you even look at the wild Samoans who are the Anahuac families near and dear to me. You know they were you know, savages that you know might might uh, be cannibals and they would you know be crazy and stuff. It, it, it's weird because wrestling is this weird hybrid. It's not the UFC yet. There's a lot of similar DNA in it. It's it's not a movie yet. It, there has there is some of that in it. It's a live performance, but we'll, what it, where does it fall? Is it, should it be politically correct? Should it not be politically correct? Is it is it trying to aspire to be something it's not? It's not going to ever be Wimbledon. It's never going to be the U.S. Open. You know, and you're not going to have Rolex as a sponsor. It's just never going to happen. So, are you know your audience is what Vince McMahon would always say to to anyone, whether you're a wrestler or a writer. Know your audience. Who are we putting this out there for? Uh, And I think right now, wrestling's kind of trying to figure that out. They have a very hardcore audience, but they don't really know how to find a way of hooking the casual audience. And I think a lot of it comes down to a cool factor. I think there's always going to be that undercurrent of sleaze to how people feel in the mainstream about pro wrestling. And maybe it's because of things like these stereotypes that we're talking about, because, oh my God, that's so low brow to do something like that. And that's going to be a problem. WWE's always had a inkling to do stuff like that, but uh, recent years, you know, like with Umaga, it was Eddie so, Fatu and I were very aware of the fact that we wanted to appropriately tip our hat to his his family, but we also wanted to make the character very progressive and, and not exactly, you know, some sort of wild savage. You know, he, he was dangerous. He was unpredictable. But he also, you know, had you know the crunked out teeth, and you know he had that ink and everything that made him, you know, much more contemporary. His trunks, his trunks, and his face paint. Yes. Now originally the face paint uh, was actually supposed to be a tattoo that was going to be a temporary tattoo that we'd reapply uh, every few weeks. But he, <laughs> he didn't feel comfortable about having that on his face twenty-four seven, so it became face paint in that <laughs> case. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I even see it with guys like, if you remember Regal and, and Tajiri, you know, like it was a very weird, you know, kind of stereotype thing happening with both of them. It's like no one, no one can understand Tajiri except for Regal. Um, and we always would joke when I was there, it's like R2-D2 and 3-CPO. and Like who, no one can understand uh, R2-D2, but 3-CPO could, the proper British gentleman. Uh, so that was like our analogy for Tajiri and Regal at that moment. Yeah, that's that's quite accurate.
0: What would you say are no-go topics and areas in in writing for wrestling?
2: My my personal opinion is always stay away from religion, stay away from politics. <laughs> you know, it's whenever you go there, you're just begging to alienate someone. And so, why do it at all? I, I think you know, for, for wrestling it should be it should be a reflection of of our culture, but also an escape. And you have that responsibility to give people that escape without it feeling like a, a, a too real reflection. Yes, it can. I love the the uh, attitude area and it was very felt very real. But you know, it 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 didn't cut into the areas that people were sensitive to. You know, it reflected that part of culture that you wanted out of a movie or TV show uh, or out of the sports culture, but not necessarily you know cutting into. Politics or religion, you know, those are to me are the two. ECW messed with it once, uh, and it was bad for them. WWE did it once with the crucifix; uh, they crucified someone as well, and they got all of a sudden uh, the Parents t- uh, Television Council, or whatever they were called, uh, started to follow their product, which was not great for their advertising you know their clients and their ad sales so but
0: did uh, create right to censor ultimately
2: it did and i don't know if that was ever a great idea or not
0: (laughs) just on your on the politics point it was interesting when they did the self-culture stuff particularly around the tea party but but also even the failed kind of Mex America storyline because if you think of the complexities of what potentially that was trying to get across in terms of an American, in, in the time of Trump's election trail and all that kind of stuff, as a former Tea Party member making an alliance with the Mexican to create a Mexican America. It's very complex, and probably that's why it didn't work. I'm just interested in your thoughts, I guess, on on the kind of use of subjects like politics in in the modern WWE.
2: And one thing occurs to me when we talk about stereotypes, just hit me now, was the Mexicals. I was there for the Mexicals, and that was a a racist joke made by someone and all of a sudden within uh, 12 hours you have three guys that were both uh, earmarked to be part of reviving the whole division now par- are part of a trio act with lawnmowers that are doing an act that to this day still offends people I have, I have friends in Mexico that still talk about how offensive that was and and ask me if I had anything to do with it I did not, I was hoping we would have a revived cruiserweight division <laughs> but uh, that that was probably the last time I can recall, I'm sure there's other examples that happened in the last few years but that one really stuck out to me
0: We've nearly had Juventud Guerrero on a couple of times but
2: he just you know he wanted the job so he wasn't going to push back
0: yeah so there's an element of like some wrestlers will just want to do it to stay employed essentially
2: yeah that's the realities that's the realities of it yeah we did
0: some talking and now we'll do some more we did some talking and now we'll do some more the talking was good. And it was about some stuff. The talking was really, really good. We did some talking. Now we'll do some more. We did some talking. And now we'll do some more. The talking was good. And it was about some stuff. The talking was really, really Another nationality that has been heavily stereotyped over the years has been Mexican. Court just mentioned again the Mexico's controversial characterization, and I mentioned at the top of the show Eddie Guerrero's lying, cheating and stealing, driving to the ring in Lowriders. So next up, we speak to Chavo Guerrero Jr. As well as being Eddie's nephew, Chavo is a former WWE cruiserweight and tag team champion, as well as holding the ECW title. He now works as a wrestler and producer for Lucha Underground, and is a trainer and consultant for the Netflix show GLOW which we'll talk about a little bit more in the next episode. For much of his career, Chavo has played a similar character to Eddie. And at one point, he even played a short-lived character called Kerwin White, the golfer who denounced his Mexican heritage and pretended to be white. Dolph Ziggler's first role in WWE was actually as Kerwin White's caddy. Anyway, here's Chavo.
4: So we've been in, involved in wrestling for over, over 80 years now. My am uh, my a third-generation professional wrestler, following my of my grandfather, Glory and my father, Charles senior, how classic, you we'll called Hector, Mondo, and Eddie, we have cousins that are wrestlers. My grandmother actually met my grandfather because she went to go see her brother, who was a wrestler, Russell, and met my grandfather. So on um, both sides of the family, there's a bunch of wrestlers. So we just have kind of done everything, the Guerrero's have done everything in the wrestling world as far as promote and wrestle and set tickets. and. And sweep up and set up rings and perform in the WrestleMania, be WWE champion. So, we've kind of done everything. So, pretty well known in the wrestling family, in the wrestling world, if you want to call it that.
0: The Guerrero family is such a legendary Mexican wrestling family, and I, and I wondered what your view was on how Mexican wrestlers have been
4: portrayed in wrestling over time. Well, wrestling, wrestling, very. You know, look at what's going on in in the news, and you'll see a wrestling character. What's going on in the news? are all on, you know, the Iron Sheik against. You know, the USA versus Iran, or Russia versus USA. You know, and that's that's always been wrestling. And we, and, and especially in, in global kind of we kind of show us eighty stereotypes. And you know, it is what it is. If you're Hispanic, sometimes you come out with that, you know, Hispanic musical. You always see the Japanese wrestler come out with the uh you know, the the stereotypical um Japanese you know, why isn't the Japanese also coming out to Iron Maiden, <laughs> you know, they they like that, <laughs> you know, it's it just, it's kind of just the way it is, and it's, it's been, it's definitely changing a little bit, for sure, you know, but, you know, if you see WWE, you got Russo coming out with a big Russian hat on, and <laughs> portraying his nationality, you know, so, you know, it is what it is, Yeah, it's, yeah. it's entertainment.
0: From a British fan's perspective, I remember when R- William Regal was in it and was drinking tea and had the flag, and even now you have right. Jack, Jack Gallagher who who has an umbrella and does a Mary Poppins thing because it's the, the British stereotype. And as a British fan, we would right. look at that and go, oh, well, that's right. a very right. niche British thing, but obviously it's, it's made for... American or world audience. I wondered if you had any feelings when WWE did things like your characters over time and Mexico's, whether you had any similar feelings about that or whether
4: it's just simply. It's just, it's Hollywood. I remember one time when, you know, they had somebody, some I had a very similar question to asking about Eddie, you know, and Eddie was very, very good, very, very stereotype Chicano, Latino, you know, and uh, they're like, well, how do you feel about that? I'm saying, what about it? You just, just playing a character. You do you, you is anybody saying the same thing when Edward James almost is playing uh, a gangbanger in American Me? It's a character you're playing. So, you know, you're acting. Maybe your character, your person, you know, magnified and really like, you know, brought out, but that's kind of the character we're playing at all times. Anyways, anytime he came out in Lowriders, you know, that was us. We grew up in El Paso and, you know, part of LA and, I own a lowrider to this day. I have a 1963 polished convertible that was the first call that me in any out on. That's sitting in my driveway. It, it's me. It's it just, just intensified. You know, I wear a bandana on my head at times. You know, I'll, I'm listening, you know, besides listening to country and rap, you, I'm listening to, uh, to Latino music, you know, so it's just a character.
0: Yeah, but were you ever a golf caddy, Chavo? That's the question.
4: I play golf all the time, to be honest, I play golf all the time. Now, I don't have blonde hair when I'm doing it, but <laughs> I do play golf a lot.
0: Did that come from you, that character, or how did you feel about playing that role?
4: So nothing really you ever see in wrestling, you're obviously an educated person, so hey, as far as wrestling goes, but anything you see in wrestling, it's not really coming from the wrestlers, it's coming from the writers. So the story with the current White uh, character is me coming off of a plane from Japan and Vince McMahon coming up to me and saying, "Hello, Carlin And I said, "Oh, what does that mean?" Well, today you have been to a denounce your Mexican heritage and you're going to become a white guy. So you've got two things: you can either say no and get fired, or you can say, "Great, let's embrace this character and let's really let let's let's do it."
0: Yeah, it's quite a binary decision, really. It's either keep your job and do it or not.
4: If it was up to any one of us, we'd all be John Cena or Batista and destroying everybody and be the champ. But it's not. It's not at us. It's up to this man and what he wants. There's can only be one champ. And everybody else, sometimes you just got you know, you make you make lemonade out of lemons. And it's TV is the same thing, you know, you have Alison Bree and Mark Maron and, and those the stars of the show. Well everybody wants to be the star and not the co star. But there's <laughs> there's only room for a couple stars. And every federation you go to is the same thing, you know, you you just do what you got to do with your character.
0: And was there anything pitched to you that you didn't want to do and refused, or were you always along those lines in that mindset?
4: No, we always kind of, whatever they pitched, I kind of just made the best of it, you know, you did the best of your ability, and that's, I think that's why you have a job for so long or had a job for so long in the major federations these business days, because... You take what is given to you and you and you do it you do it well. <laughs> you know, it's kind of it.
0: Sure. And um how does the representation of Mexican wrestlers in WWE, how does that differ from where you currently work in Lucha Underground?
4: I don't really watch WWE right now to be honest. I, I, I'm such a Lucha Underground guy and I'm a producer on that show, so I'm really super consumed with that show. We're not emulating WWE, we're making our own brand. So basically, it's like I always say, WWE is like the Coca-Cola of wrestling. And if you try to make another cola, all you are is just a knockoff, a cheap knockoff. And you see that with a lot of other federations and other companies trying to imitate WWE. And it's just just a cheap imitation. With Lucha Underground, what we did was kind of make a different beverage. Is it still a beverage? Sure. But it's not a cola. It's different. We made almost an energy drink. And kind of changed wrestling a little bit by filming it like it's in a movie and kind of doing a hybrid of styles between Uchibe and and the U.S. style, you know, and, you know, it's just so, back to your question, I don't, I don't watch other companies too much, so I, I, I don't have an opinion on that, to be honest.
0: Okay, it should be extremely clear now that wrestling has used overt national identity stereotypes, sometimes tasteless ones, throughout its existence. There are several reasons why they do so. Sometimes to market that character in their home country. Sometimes to make characters easier to boo and cheer. Was it racist at times? Yes, and horribly so. Is it getting better? Yes. Recently, a wrestler Big E did a tweet which featured The New Day, Rich Swann and Sasha Banks all holding their titles and it said black excellence and it really showed actually that black wrestlers don't have to come from prison or the wild to have a character anymore they're just wrestlers that happen to be black and similarly there are wrestlers in wwe now that just happen to be japanese or british or canadian or syrian or dutch or irish without relying on the cliched characters at the time of recording this a very close to the line indian maharaja was the champion on one of the major shows, so it certainly hasn't been eliminated completely. There's definitely some interesting things that have come out about wrestlers not resisting the characters they are asked to portray in a similar way to actors not being able to refuse to take on a role. So how does wrestling compare to other scripted TV shows? What's the writer's room like? And what happens if the creative team has nothing for you? We'll look into that in our final episode of Series 2 next time on The World According to Wrestling. We are on Twitter at The underscore W-A-T-W. We're also on Instagram at The World According to Wrestling. And there are footnotes from this episode at worldaccordingtowrestling.com. Thanks to all our guests on this episode. Rikishi trains the wrestlers of tomorrow at Knox Pro Academy. He is on Twitter at The Real Rikishi. Chavo Guerrero Jr. is a consultant on GLOW. Season 1 is available to watch now on Netflix. Dave Meltzer is the editor of The Wrestling Observer. His website is wrestlingobserver.com. Port Bauer hosts a radio channel at mlwradio.com. The producers of the show are Danny Smith, Rob Brandon and Ben Higgs. The show is edited by Danny Smith and mixed by Will Berger. The music is from We Am Sam. The logo is by the design practice of James Lunn and the cool illustrations are from the pen of Paul Cooper. Next time we look inside the writer's room. Ta-ra.
1: Talking about wrestling. Men and men punching each other in the face. It's a race to the top, the top of the space. First place put punching men sometimes in the face. Talking about wrestling. Talking about wrestling.
2: Who are
0: these people breaking open each other's heads? Sometimes they wear pink and blue or gold, sometimes they wear red. Sometimes they retire, sometimes they did. That's
2: cold, man.
0: Yeah,
1: I know, but what you gonna do?
2: Nothing, I guess.
1: For real, cause that's life. Life in the ring.
2: No doubt. Hit it, hit it.